my fellow assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, The Dark Assassin. Before we get into this episode, I just got to ask you guys a quick question. Uh, How did you all enjoy losing your one hour of sleep this weekend? At least those of you who are in the, the United States and live in a state that actually follows daylight savings time, since I believe Hawaii and I think Arizona, I want to say, uh, don't follow it. And then if you're in some other part of the world, I have no idea what your daylight savings schedule is or if you even follow it. Uh, but yeah, lost an hour of sleep this weekend, which not going to lie, was, was kind of rough. Uh, but with that said, I, I am enjoying the fact that it's a, it's light longer. So at the time I'm recording this podcast, I record it usually in the evenings. Um, it's actually light outside, uh, at least when I'm starting to record the episode. By the time I finish, it'll probably be dark. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, it is it is a little bit rough uh, now that when I have, have to wake up for work in the morning, it's it's dark again. Um, it was just kind of starting to get a little bit light out when I had to get up, and it's 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 dark again, uh, so that's kind of rough. But you know, it is what it is. It'll slowly start getting better. Uh, but yeah, daylight savings time. Gotta love that time of year. But let's start off this episode uh, with this week's trivia question. So this week's trivia question. Honestly, I think it's going to stump a lot of people, Uh, so big props to anyone who gets this uh, week's trivia question correct, but this week's trivia question is what was Linus Torvald's original name for his operating system? And I'll give you a hint, if you're thinking Linux, that's the current name, but that's not right, so go back to the drawing board. Um, So that is your trivia question for the week. Now, before we get too far into this episode, I need to make a public service announcement. So for anyone out there that has a Nintendo 3DS or a Wii U, the Nintendo eShop for those devices is closing on March 27th which means you won't be able to download any apps or anything like that from the eShop after the 27th, which is uh, about less than two weeks away. Uh, we're getting getting close to that point. Um, let's see. So I'm recording this. Yeah, it's about a week and a half away uh, from the day that this episode airs. So anyone out there that was has a 3DS or a Wii U lying around, uh, make sure that if there's anything you want, uh, you get it because you won't be able to get it again. And the reason why I bring this up is because if you're like me and you enjoy playing Pokemon... If you want to be able to transfer Pokemon from your old games to the latest games, you have to go through the 3DS to get your Pokemon in Pokemon Bank and then up to Pokemon Home. The problem is Pokemon Bank is a download from the eShop. So if you don't download it before... Uh, the 27th, you're never going to be able to download it, which means you'll never be able to transfer any old Pokemon up to the latest games, which would definitely be a major bummer. Um, theoretically, uh, they Nintendo might port some of the games to the newer gen consoles, Um, Like they did with uh, Gens 1 and 2, they made virtual consoles on the 3DS, which also are through the eShop. So if you want to play the original games on the 3DS or transferred original Gen 1 and Gen 2 Pokemon to the latest games, you have to get um, you have to get them basically get them now uh, before they go bye bye forever, Uh, because 
they they did like a complete Nintendo did like a or I guess Game Freak did like a complete redesign on the back end of how Pokemon are I guess structured uh between gens one and two and then gen three and onward so you're not while you're able to transfer pokemon from generation one to generation two on the original cartridges no problem you can't transfer them up to generation three which was a huge controversy back in the day but there well actually i guess i there's a little caveat to that. There is a video I saw floating around on YouTube of someone that actually did manage to reverse engineer and make it possible to transfer uh, from Generation 2 up to Generation 3. Little janky, not like mass market by any stretch of the imagination, uh, at least by the time I'm recording this. And there is a little bit of guesswork and kind of hacking involved to, like, actually get it to work. But he did get it to work. Uh, but for everyone else, yeah, if your Pokemon are on a Gen 1 or Gen 2 cartridge, uh, they're not getting past that stage. But now, if you don't get Pokemon Bank and the Poke Transporter, which you have to get through Pokemon Bank... Which, it's it's really weird, because the Poke Transporter is on the eShop, but you can't download it from the eShop unless you have Pokemon Bank and download the Poke Transporter through Pokemon Bank, which takes you to the eShop to download it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's kind of weird and complicated and convoluted. I'm not sure why they did it that way, but that's how they did it. Uh, but anyway, if you don't download those to your 3ds uh, you won't be able to do any kind of transferring upwards um, unless you find a 3ds on ebay somewhere someone reselling it that happens to already have them installed um, and maybe someone somewhere down the line will find a way to sideload them on there i don't know uh, but it's it's safe to just get them now because because well for, for my understanding anyway is well before this shutdown happens you had to pay for pokemon bank to be able to store pokemon in there and transfer them to the new games but my understanding is once the eShop shuts down the basically nintendo is going to make it free for everyone so you don't need to to pay for it anymore um so and the app, I believe, is free to download, um, from what I recall. Uh, but I believe for to get the Pokey Transporter, I don't quote me on this, but I think you might actually have to have the paid subscription to be able to actually go through and download it if you haven't done it already. I believe uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but I think it's like five bucks for the year. So I mean, it's essentially a five dollar purchase for two apps and then you'll be able to transfer your pokemon up for uh as long as you want basically uh unless they shut down servers who knows how many years down the road but that you know we'll get there if we get there um but yeah it's it's kind of crazy to think that uh the 3ds has been around for over a decade now since 2011 which kind of makes me feel old since i remember getting a 3ds and uh man does not feel like over a decade ago let me tell you uh but yeah uh so yeah that's your public service announcement for any anyone with an old 3ds or wii u out there or yeah wii u out there uh, if there's anything you want now's the time to get it because uh it's going to be shutting down soon um so with that out of the way Let's get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, the big thing that I want to hit on here is to avoid single points of failure. Now, for the general home user, general casual user, you probably, this probably gen isn't a huge issue for you. Uh, because you probably don't have services running that you need to rely on. Uh, but maybe it's 
you have your main computer and then a backup computer. If something happens to one of those computers, you're not out of computer maybe. Uh, but specifically for the uh, home labbers amongst us, um, single points of failure are definitely something that we have to be aware of. And anyone in the enterprise world knows that single points of failure are a huge concern uh, because the reason why you don't want to have single points of failure, if it's not obvious enough, if that one point of failure fails, uh, you're out of luck. And if that's a critical service or server or router or switch or something and it goes down you could be in a world of hurt so for example let's say you have a nas um, set up somewhere and you don't have any backups for the nas you don't have any redundancy for the nas nothing if some cyber attacker gets in ransomware is your NAS, corrupts everything, encrypts everything, and all your data's gone, well, you don't have a backup, and you don't have any other systems where the NAS was replicated to, you have no means to get the data back, so you're kind of out of luck. Unless, I guess unless you want to pay the cyber criminal, but don't do that uh, if you can avoid it, because uh, that just promotes their behavior. Now... In addition to that NAS example, let's assume that maybe you're playing around, you know, with a, a router. Say you maybe you're like in my case, uh, we all know about my router saga, which actually I have an update for you this episode, which we'll get into. Uh, but say you're playing around with a, a router and that goes down um, if you don't have some other router or some other means to connect to the internet well again you're out of luck no internet for you which a little bit of a side tangent part of the reason why I don't necessarily catch when my router misbehaves I guess we can say is because I don't have a single point of failure because I have two separate networks one for like my servers and then one for my other devices and like things like my phone my tv and like a couple of my laptops and such are on that other network so if i'm using them i have no idea if the router is down which sometimes it is so i don't know <laughs> but then if i'm on the other network my server network then yeah i can tell pretty quickly that it's down but the nice thing is is just because that one router goes down that doesn't mean i'm completely out of internet so there's a, a real world example of uh avoiding single points of failure another one would be like dns uh stuff so at, at my house i host a few dns servers again for basically the same purpose avoiding single points of failure um, partly in case if a VM fails, partly to load balance. Um, but another reason why I had, um, had that was I have essentially a DNS server, a piehole server is what I'm running, um, on different hypervisors. So if I want to take a hypervisor down for maintenance, um, again, no single point of failure so even though that one dns server is down i still have others that are running so i don't lose access to the internet so things like that the if you it basically increases your resiliency so you can afford to take things down for maintenance to prevent any future issues um, and in the events of some kind of cyber attack or some other kind of hacking going on um, or you know, system program crash, whatever the case may be, if a if a service fails or an app appliance fails or a server fails or whatever fails or other for some reason is unusable, uh, you're not out of luck. You still have options. You still have stuff that's usable until you can recover that piece of software, uh, server, appliance, you know, whatever the case may be. 
Um, so if you can avoid single points of failure, I know there's some places that that's kind of hard to do. And in other places, that's pretty expensive to do. <laughs> uh, but where you can, if you can avoid single points of failure at any place you can, uh, you want to make sure you do that. Because, for example, one place that's, like I mentioned, expensive it's costly um, to do is specifically when we're talking about a NAS or a network attached storage, any kind of backup solution that you might have. Uh, the problem there is it doesn't matter how beefy and ballin' of a NAS you got, you essentially have to double your cost if you want to have any kind of redundancy. Because, yeah, it might be cool to have, I don't know, like, 100 terabytes worth of raw storage but if you have no way to back up that 100 terabytes of raw storage and it goes bye-bye well then you're out of luck so you need another 100 terabytes of storage somewhere whether that's off-site preferably off-site whether that's in the cloud at a friend's house at your parents house uh i don't know where else you might store some some i don't know anywhere um not where you are um but i mean that's in itself you know double the price because you have to factor in that extra storage um now the cheaper solution if you don't have that massive amount of storage what you could do is you could somehow like archive your data kind of like what i've done um i've mentioned my backup script before uh, basically archive your storage somehow and then you could even as simply as buying like an external hard drive or something to take that archive data and put it on the external hard drive and then you can take that external hard drive and again put it somewhere off site put it at me i don't Depending on where you work, you might not be able to keep it there or people might get suspicious if you have it there. But, you know, keeping it at a friend's house, you know, friend, family's house, something like that um, where your data can be, be kept safe. That's probably the, the cheapest solution. Um, or if you wanted to go the cloud route, that's also a, a pretty good solution. Again, could be kind of pricey depending on how much data you're trying to back up. Uh, but, yeah, at wherever you can avoid single points of failure. So that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, I bet you guys can't guess who bought an Xserve. Uh, no, if you're thinking that it's me, I did not buy another Xserve. Uh, personally, I don't really think I need two screaming banshees in my house. Um, now, I will caveat that though, if those massive industrial fans that I uh, showed you guys on the podcast, when was that, a couple months ago, uh, roaring away, I mean, if those come back, well, then I might have to get another Xserve to protect the Xserve's pride uh, so it can uh, have some help to compete and take back the title of loudest thing in my house. Uh, because when those fans were here, yeah, the Xserve... I think, like I mentioned in that episode, was kind of like walking like a dog with the tail between its legs uh, because how outperformed in the noise department it was just getting beat. It was it was getting absolutely humiliated. So I might have to buy another one uh, to help the Xserve take back the crown for being the loudest thing in the house. But I don't have those fans back, thankfully, um, so I don't particularly see myself getting another Xserve anytime soon. But Linus from Linus Tech Tips did buy an Xserve. And uh, I gotta say, Linus, if you're listening, which I know you're probably not, uh, welcome to the club. Although I guess I will say, um, when I was thinking about this, uh, to talk about this on the podcast, which... For, what's kind of funny is I, I literally sat down to eat dinner, turned on uh, the YouTubes uh, to watch something while I ate my food, and I saw Linus had a video come out today about uh, him about an Xserve, and you know he I, they bought an Xserve and kind of going over it, um, 
you know, some of the features and a little bit of the history and whatnot. And I was like, man, I got to talk about this on the podcast. But then as I was, you know, jotting down some notes of things I wanted to mention for this, I when I when I thought about that that point of Linus, if you're listening, which I know you're probably not, I figured, you know what, I might as well check the analytics. And sure enough, (laughs) uh, there is like, I think, less than one percent of listeners from Canada and the only percentage of people from Canada that it shows are from British Columbia, which is where Linus is headquarters. So I don't know. Maybe Linus is listening to this podcast, which uh, if you are listening, Linus should have hit me up on that video uh, because I saw you had uh, quite the bear of a time uh, trying to get Mac OS installed, which, you know... I'm not sure if any of you guys saw the video or not, but like they walked through like all the hoops they were trying to jump through to get macOS installed. And as they were going through this, I was just thinking to myself, man, if only there was like a guide somewhere that walked you through how to install macOS on an XServe, you know, get the server utils, get IPMI working, uh, links to all those all those resources in one place you know, how to even run the latest version of macOS, you know, if only there was a guide like that somewhere, um, or or if someone, like, made a, a tutorial or a blog post or did any kind of, like, podcast or something discussing it, discussing it at length on multiple occasions, man, if only that had happened, if only someone did that, well... Oh, well, maybe next time, Linus. Maybe next time uh, when you try to buy another XServe, if you do, maybe there will be one of those things out in the ether uh, that you could reference. Um, But all I'm saying is if any of the devoted listeners to the Dark Assassins podcast was in Linus's shoes, they probably wouldn't have had much issue at all uh, trying to get their XServe up and running and getting macOS installed. Uh, that is for sure. But enough talking about what Linus did this week. Let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So I mentioned earlier in the episode talking about uh, avoiding single points of failure uh, that I had an update on my router. So router update 394 Uh, Bonus points for anyone who got the reference there. Uh, Of course, I'm referring to the 394 part. Um, It might have been easier for you to have gotten that reference if I used some kind of Alan Rickman impression, but oh well. Anyway, uh, I didn't have any issues this week, surprisingly, but I decided to do some testing and tinkering. So... I ran the diagnostic tools that are like built basically built into every computer's BIOS. Um, so I decided to run the diagnostic tools because part of me was wondering if I was having some kind of hardware issue. I was thinking maybe a RAM issue, possibly a hard drive failing issue. I wasn't sure. I figured might as well run the tests, see what happens. And those tests ran and everything passed. The RAM passed, the smart test for the the hard drive passed, and then it ran some other hard drive test and that passed. So I was like, okay, probably not a hardware issue, which on the one hand, that's nice because I don't have to replace anything on the system. But at the same time, that doesn't really help me <laughs> to try to pin down the solution. So... I I went through the uh, some of the the hardware settings, the BIOS settings on the system, and I I played around with some of those. Namely, what I did was I changed the power option to full boot rather than quick boot. I honestly don't know if that's even going to help at all, uh, but I figured it's basically running as a server. So even if this full boot takes an extra half few seconds it doesn't really matter to me because again it's running as a server it's not like I need to restart my computer and it needs to be up as fast as possible and then here here though is where I I have some hope so I was I was going through some of the settings and I found two potential 
options in the power management setting or section. And those were disabling SATA and PCI Express power management. So before they were set to enabled and now they're set to disabled. And my theory here is that maybe this power management thing is causing the devices to go into or enter some kind of sleep mode or the power going to them drops enough and then they kind of it causes proxmox to kind of freak out and freeze and stall and not work anymore that's kind of what i'm thinking might be happening and then if this case if i disable the power management uh features so they so none of that stuff can happen maybe that'll prevent these freezes and crashings from happening i don't know (laughs) uh as of the recording of this podcast everything is still working but at the same time i literally just did this fix yesterday as of the time of recording so there really hasn't been much time to stress test and the other problem with this as those of you who have listened to the uh, podcast for a while now are definitely well aware I'll come up with a potential fix. It'll be fine for a few days, sometimes even a few weeks or a month or so, and then it decides to break again. So who knows if this is the the fix to fix all fixes or if this is just another fix in the saga of things I'll try before it still decides not to work and then I'm back to square one. So... Yeah, I guess hopefully you'll never hear from me again on this issue because that means this fix actually worked and I kind of forget that I've had any problems with it and we're good to go. Or we continue with this saga and I come back with another update sometime down the road. And yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping, fingers crossed that this is the the fix now the other thing that i did this week was if you remember back a couple i think it was a like two or three episodes ago i talked about seeing a video tutorial series about building your own operating system so yeah i started that uh that honestly kind of fun um the, but this this uh, this thing this tutorial series goes ham. Um, now before I get too far, I do want to give you guys the um, uh, the name of the uh, the series if in, just in case um, you wanted to to look into it yourself and you know maybe try to make your own operating system too. Um, so I also have it linked down in the show notes below too, in case you're interested, but the YouTube channel is called Nanobyte. Um, they have a a GitHub repo with like all the source code, uh, for the operating system that they're, they're working on through the tutorial. And then they also have, uh, like an experimental one where they're kind of doing some experiment stuff on, which I will say. Uh, while the tutorial series is very good, uh, at least so far, I think I've gotten through three or four episodes so far, I think. Um, they, they do, at one point, he kind of transitions to using like some other compiler, and I didn't feel like installing it, so I kind of spent a decent chunk of time trying to look through, like jumping forward to the part where he switches back to GCC and then trying to like reverse engineer and hack together getting GCC to work with the current state that I have it at now. And it was it was quite the process, um, but it was fun. Um, so, But there was definitely a lot of tinkering involved uh, to get that working. Uh, but that was just a personal preference of mine. If that's something that you don't care about, then it would be even easier for you. Uh, but I wanted to try to not have to download a separate tool just for like a couple steps and then going back to GCC. So I figured I might as well try to see if I can't hack in GCC to get it working, um, which I did end up managing to do. Uh, but that did take a, a decent chunk of time. 
but one thing that is really interesting about this tutorial series is back in my... I mentioned in the episode where I talked about building my own operating system and how it was kind of like a pipe dream of mine. Um, and, and when I was talking about that, I remember I mentioned a operating systems class I took in undergrad where we basically... it Really all it did was it booted into a kernel and it literally just essentially just said hello world basically and that was literally all it did and you couldn't shut it down or anything unless you killed the the vm or shut your computer off or whatever but that used the grub bootloader in order to get it to work whereas this tutorial series he has you writing your own bootloader which is kind of cool if you ask me um now i'm still in like the super early stages so like i think i'm at the point now where I'm transitioning from like 16-bit mode to 32-bit mode and trying to incorporate c into the bootloader phase um so definitely <laughs> you know in the grand scheme of an operating system barely even off the ground if we even have gotten off the ground if we've even left the runway uh but it, it definitely progress um now i i will warn anyone out there that's interested in maybe trying to take this on the while the videos themselves i at least the first few are kind of in the 25 to 40 minute range as far as runtime goes, um, don't think that's how long you're going to spend on the video because you're probably going to be typing stuff along with him. He goes too fast. You have to pause it to make sure you typed it, and then you compile it. When he compiles it, you get an error. You have to go do some debugging, rewind the video. So it's it's a little deceptive in that sense where how long the video says it's going to take versus how long you actually take on the video. Um, but then he also gets into some of the later episodes, which I haven't really gotten into, that are like parts of a live stream and they're like hours long. Um, so if you're interested in undergoing, you know, this project and kind of making your own OS like that, uh, be sure to set a large chunk of time aside because you're probably going to spend a large chunk of time just working on like one small segment of these or if it's the live stream, a small segment of it, or if it's one of the pre-done videos, a large segment on just one of those videos. So, so make sure you have plenty of time because, uh, you will, you will definitely need it. Um. But so far, I, I've I've thought it's been pretty fun. Um, I guess we'll see how far I get with this um, before some other project comes along and <laughs> takes the wind out of these sails and it becomes another one of my many personal projects that just kind of gets put on the back burner for a long time before I come back to it months weeks years later whatever the case may be realize how cool it is and then get back into it so we'll see what happens um but yeah if any anyone interested uh, i'll leave a link um down in the show notes for both the uh playlist on youtube as well as the github repo uh, in case you want to check either of those out so with that out of the way I wanted to get into a couple developer-specific news stories that I, I kind of came across. Um, one of them is actually from, I think, a couple weeks ago, which we also kind of touched on, I think, a little bit um, in the episode we did of should you actually be a software developer? And this goes to a study that found nearly 40% of software engineers will only work remotely, which I found, honestly, I, it's not surprising, <laughs> to be honest, uh, w with how us software devs are. It's not exactly something that's super shocking. Um, but it, it, at the same time, like 40% of, you know, software engineers and developers only wanting to work remotely, 
um, is kind of kind of interesting. And the the thing is, is like you know, some people are reportedly planning on quitting. Like you know, if the if their organization makes them go back to the office, or they won't work for a new company if they don't have the option to work for work from home or work remotely. Um, now, I think I, I mentioned it in that episode where we talked about, you know, the pros and cons of being a software developer, like as your profession. And I am very much mixed when it comes to working remotely and working from home, because on the one hand, I do enjoy it. The commute is awesome. Um, I'll take seven steps for my commute any day of the week. It is amazing. Uh, but on the other hand, is depending on the work that you do and the projects you develop for, it's honestly kind of an impediment to your productivity to work from home. And the reason I say that is I'm pretty sure I mentioned it in the episode a few weeks ago while it's nice to you know be able to work from home you don't necessarily have to get dressed at all if you don't want to unless you have a you know some kind of meetings or something but you could either not turn your camera on or you can do what I did when I was doing job interviews and only dress from the waist up and don't worry about anything on the waist down. Just, just wear what you want to wear because no one's going to see it anyway. Uh, just make sure you don't stand up while your camera's still on since that would not be good. Um, but the the thing is, depending on what projects you're working on, nothing beats being able to walk down the hall or go to the next cube over or essentially within the matter of seconds be able to just in person like ask one of the other developers like hey uh i have a question for you can you help me with x y and z or hey can you look over my code real quick or something like that that you can get an immediate response now you could say well if you're working remotely you could try to you know set up a just a one-on-one like session between you and another developer and kind of do a screen share thing which I guess yeah that could kind of work or you could say well yeah you could you know shoot them a slack message or shoot them a teams message or whatever message thing you're using yeah I guess you could do that but something in my opinion that there's something that you you don't really get when you're you know have that that in-person interaction which, because for me personally, like even the whole like video conference thing to kind of like, you know, screen share and look over the code, while yeah, that could be a replacement, you still kind of have to schedule the time because, and you have to make sure that the other person's like actively looking at their messages because if you uh, haven't been around developers much, one thing that can happen to us is we'll just get so sucked into our code that we'll kind of neglect for lack of a better term like anything else so i've had it happen where i'll just be busy you know focusing on coding doing my development stuff and then i'll be like oh yeah uh, i should probably you know just check up on my email and you know teams messages make sure i didn't miss anything and of course i did miss something so if it's that kind of situation you're not going to have as quick of a response as if, you know, you just walk down the hall or walk to the next cube over and, you know, asked, ask the person like, hey, can you help me with this? Um, and now if you're working on, you know, some kind of open source framework or something where there's tons and tons of documentation online, um, you know, you're working in a super widely known language like like if you're a web developer working with JavaScript, um, doing Java development, Python, C++, Rust, you know, any of those widely known languages and you're using, you know, open source frameworks or widely used frameworks, that kind of thing with lots and lots of good documentation out there, 
then yeah, you probably don't necessarily need to have to, you know, have a lot. Of, you probably won't necessarily have a lot of questions that you can't just, you know, open up your web browser and, you know, search to your heart's content and find your answer relatively quickly. Um, now, some would argue, yeah, well, you could still probably get the answer quicker if you want to talk to someone. Okay, okay, yeah, sure. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to be the middleman here and, you know, argue both sides and try to see both sides of the argument and not go all in on one camp and ignore the other one. So there are definitely, without a doubt, pros and cons to working remotely versus, you know, working in the office all the time. And on the other hand, though, I guess if you're working, say your company, um, say you're like, you know, working at a, like a, uh, you're working at Meta or Google or Apple or any other tech company and you have your own proprietary frameworks that you can't just, you know, go online and search documentation for. In those cases, you can't, like, like I mentioned, you can't just go online and look up how do I do X, Y, and Z in this framework because the documentation does not exist because it's not publicly available. Now, maybe your company has a super good documentation scheme that you can easily search and find the answers that way. If you're in that boat, that's awesome, um, but not every company has that, and if you're in one of those situations, then you really have no choice. You, here's your choices. You can either sit there at your computer and beat your head against the wall for hours and days on end, or you could just go ask one of the other developers a quick question, and they could either, if they don't know the answer, they can point you in the right direction of the answer to help you along. So it really depends in that regard as far as what your workflow is and like what kind of projects you're working on. Because on the one hand, yes, you could just be as efficient at home as you would be at the office because if you have any questions, you can easily look things up and get your answers. But on the other hand, you potentially couldn't have that luxury, in which case being in the office and being able to have that interaction with other developers that have also had experience in this proprietary framework um, to get their input and their insights on what you should do to fix your problem, overcome a bug, where to find a solution, that kind of thing, that is, that's where it becomes invaluable to actually have that in, uh, in office time. So as far as should you as far as like wanting to only work remotely i don't know i now i think it'd be kind of cool to only work remotely but at the same time like i mentioned that it would probably get tough at times like even if things were you know complete even if the framework you were working on was like completely open that would be kind of hard at times it, it, sometimes you just you just want to like ask someone a question and just get a quick answer um, so I think, I think for me personally, I, well, I definitely wouldn't say no, if the, the company, if I want to go, you know, work for a company and they said no remote work at all, that wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker for me. Um, just like, just because a company said, you know, I, I can be a hundred percent remote means that I would rank that job higher than another job that I couldn't be a hundred percent remote. Um, I think you definitely have to find a, a balance between the two. Um, now, obviously, one thing that can't be understated is the fact that, uh, like I mentioned at the very beginning of this, my at least my instance right now, where I kind of have like a hybrid um, part working from home part working in the office, my seven-step commute on my work-from-home days are amazing. That cannot be understated. Now, the other story that I wanted to talk about here, which is kind of um, rustling some feathers, I guess, in the uh, open-source community, is Docker, specifically Docker Hub, is going to be removing open source organizations from Docker Hub unless they pay their 
uh, yearly or monthly subscription or whatever. And yeah, it's uh, it's not sitting well with a lot of people. So Docker from so Docker Hub, I guess, sent out an email um, from. They sent out an email to any organ anyone I guess registered as an organization, um, telling them that their account will be deleted, including all images, if they do not upgrade to a paid team plan. Um, so yeah, basically, if you if you wanted to, if you were registered as an organization and you were didn't pay, you were just a free member. They're I guess going to delete. All of your, your they're going to delete your organization and any images you had hosted on Docker Hub. So yeah, um, and the the plan isn't exactly cheap. It's uh, four hundred and twenty dollars a year, um, and I guess this it's paid monthly. So I guess you could potentially argue that's a little less of a pain, but still. That's a, a nice chunk of change, <laughs> um, especially if your quote-unquote organization is just you or maybe like a small team. Because one thing you have to remember here, the part of the point of open source development is like the free aspect of it. And when you're dealing with free software, you don't necessarily have a stream of income coming in or at least... A stream of reliable income coming in because you're basically your main income stream is focused on donations from people generous enough to donate money to you because they really enjoy using your product and want to support you but there's also a lot of people that you know they really enjoy using your product but it's free so you know it's it's free so they don't feel like paying you anything because it's free um, which is part of the point of making it free so you can, you know, get, you know, more people, a bit larger user base and more people using it. Um, so forcing, you know, these open source developers to, to pay, you know, to be able to host their images on one of the largest places to host Docker images is uh, kind of rough. Um, but... From what I understand from this article, which I'll have uh, linked in the show notes, um, there are, it does appear to be that there are some ways around this, um, I guess, potential removal. Um, part of it, I believe there's a, uh, there's like an open source program, open source in quotes, that you could potentially qualify for. Uh, I guess I wouldn't hold your breath on that. Um, but one of the other ones that seems a little bit more reliable is basically completely delete your organization before Docker Hub does and then recreate a personal account, which you can make as a free account, and then essentially repost all of your Docker images under your, your free account. Um, and I guess part of another reason you might want to do this is potentially prevent some cyber attacker from doing it before you do. <laughs> um, and because one thing that has been, I don't know how big of an issue it's been with Docker Hub and like Docker images in general, but cyber attackers essentially pooling docker images adding like malicious code into the docker images and trying to publish them as you know the same docker images so people would essentially pull malicious docker images rather than the the actual good ones which like any open source project if you want to make sure that your you know docker images are clean and there's no shenanigans going on in them <laughs> Uh, build them yourself and look through the source code, make sure everything's good and as it should be and there's nothing funky going on in there. Um, and then another, I guess, solution was start pushing Docker, Docker images to GitHub. GitHub has their own container registry uh, that you can push to, um, which I believe some people already do. I mean, just having your con your images in multiple places, uh, you know, even more exposure. Plus, if you're going to be hosting 
you know, your your source code repo with the code that builds the Docker image. I mean, having it all in one place potentially could be, you know, maybe even maybe even a more streamlined solution. I'm not sure. I haven't personally I haven't posted any images to either Docker Hub. I don't have an account on Docker Hub or I haven't posted any uh, images on GitHub's container registry either. I have made doc- my own Docker images before, as I mentioned on the podcast, uh, but I haven't like published them anywhere. If you want to use any of the Docker images I've I've made, you basically have to download my source code and run the Docker file, which I have steps on how to do that in the README. It's pretty simple. Um, so, so yeah, this is uh, this was a. Um, the thing that I think will be most interesting about this is what's going to happen, like, because when you use Docker, I I haven't played around with Docker enough to know, like, if you can necessarily specify where you're pooling your images from, like your base images that you want to use to build your container off of. Uh, but if you're, that could potentially hurt some people's workflows um, if they were trying to pull something from Docker Hub and then that image is no longer available because either the organization got deleted by Docker Hub or uh, it got rebranded over to something else because someone removed the organization and recreated it under their own name. So having to try to migrate your workflows to account for this potential deletion of organizations could potentially cause some bumps and some hiccups, um, but I guess we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, definitely, I don't not necessarily a great move from the the PR looks department because I think a lot of uh, open source developers and just developers in general that use Docker aren't exactly uh, too pleased. Uh, with this move but you know at the end of the day uh, docker hub they're you know at the end of the day they got to make money uh, i mean hosting all these images it's not free right like you can't if you're any kind if you deal with any kind of hosting or storage of data or even storage of like physical items like property or anything like that you know it's it ain't free. Like there is costs involved of storing this, whether in the, you know, the, in this realm with, you know, software and data, you know, it's the hard drives, the SSDs, the servers, the RAM, the electricity, all that stuff to run the infrastructure, to keep the data, um, all of the systems in place to make sure there's redundancy. So you don't, you know, lose people's data, you have backups in place, you know, all this stuff costs money. So to offer it for free, you gotta somehow make money somewhere. So it seems like maybe they're like, you know, kind of a lot of places they're they're going with the old subscription model. And then I guess they weren't making enough money. So now they're trying to force the subscriptions onto people. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here um but you know (laughs) what's one more subscription right you know soon enough uh everything will be a subscription it seems it seems like that's the way that that companies seem to want to go which i mean it in, in to their credit it's a lot nicer to know that you're always gonna have a steady stream of income coming in rather than, you know, one-time purchases for stuff because then you can have massive fluctuations and, you know, revenue streams. Whereas if you're always having a constant subscription, you always know you're getting that, you know, $9 a month from everyone or that $10 a month or $20 or whatever the subscription is. You always know you're getting that constant stream of revenue, um, which is from the business aspect of it a a nice thing to have um from the consumer aspect on the other hand it's kind of annoying having all these subscriptions all the time um especially when it's deceiving um just how quickly these subscriptions can add up when you consider like oh yeah it's only like five dollars a month 
and then you multiply that by a few subscriptions, and the next thing you know, you're paying a lot of money, and then not to every month. But then, not to mention, on top of that, uh, you while it might seem appealing, whatever their subscription plan is for a given month, you have to multiply that by 12 to actually get what you're paying every year. And at that point, you can multiply that number by X number of years, and you can realize you're really getting taken for a ride on how much this software costs or product or service or whatever the case may be. Whereas before you could have, if it's at least in like the software realm, you could have just paid a one-time fee and would have been done. Um, where I guess you could argue on the other hand, um, with the subscription model, you're always getting constant releases and constant updates. So trying to put a price tag on that versus buying a license for some software product like, say, the Adobe Suite, for example, or Windows or Microsoft Office or some other, you know, licensed thing that used to come out every few years and then having to repay that license every few years, you could potentially make the argument that the subscription is the same thing, just rather than paying one large sum once every few years, you're just paying a smaller amount every every few months and you're always getting updates and whatnot. But on the other hand, other, other hand, <laughs> you could also argue that maybe you don't want all those latest updates or maybe they change something you don't like and you like the older version. If you just paid the one-time fee on that license for that one product, that product is is basically yours. You can, you know, use it as long as you want, and you're good to go. Um, and yeah, that that's another whole topic with, you know, the subscriptions. Do you really own the software? Especially if once you stop paying the subscription, you lose access to use it, like the Adobe Suite. Um, so, yeah, that that is on. So. It, when it comes to open source software, that is one thing that's really nice about it because you don't have to pay for it and you actually own the software because all the source code's right there. You can download it, you can make changes to it, you can do whatever the heck you want with it, and it is free and open for everyone to use. Um, but on the other hand, that does come at a cost. It's gotta be supported somewhere. Like I mentioned, this stuff isn't free. Um, so I guess the, the call to action, I guess, if you will here, um, if you, if you do use open source software, um, and you really enjoy using it, um, you know, maybe tipping the developer a couple bucks, just, you know, just to say thank you for the hard work that they put into it. Even if it's a developer team, just giving them a couple bucks would, uh, would definitely help them or don't, you know, free, it's free world. You can do what you want. Um, but yeah, or I, yeah, so I don't know. It's, it's kind of, kind of sad when, you know, more things, at least in my opinion, with, with more things moving to subscriptions. Um, personally, if I'm going to pay for something, I'd rather just pay for it at once at one time, you know, the whole saying, uh, buy once cry or buy once cry once I think is what it is um yeah you might not want to pay that large sum um but then you don't have to worry about paying you know over a large longer period of time um so yeah that was really rambly uh but you know we talked about free and open source software a little bit which is a great tie-in to this week's trivia question. So if you'll recall, this week's trivia question is what was Linus Torvald's original name for his operating system? And remember, the hint here was the answer is not Linux. Although the operating system is Linux, that was not uh, his original name for it. So, if you said freaks, you are correct. And uh, freaks being spelled F-R-E-A-X. So, this was supposed to be a combination of the word free, freaks, and X as kind of an allusion to Unix. So, the story kind of goes that uh, when he was at uh, going, to going to school... 
he i guess on the the cs server that they had or some server that they had he uh, had put his operating system on there and um had called it freaks i guess and then one of the i don't know if it was like an admin or professor or someone they they changed the name of it to linux for linus's basically linus's unix and i guess the name stuck and now we have linux so uh nice little piece of uh trivia there for you um so i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode so if you enjoyed the episode i ask that you leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the dark assassins podcast if you haven't done so already also be sure to share with a friend or family member who you think might uh enjoy this episode or even the podcast i mean we got a nice backlog now of a lot of episodes almost a year's worth uh kind of crazy to think that this podcast has been going for almost a year at this point um but if you have any questions about this episode or you have topics or suggestions for future episodes uh feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com that is also down in the show notes below that you can click on to shoot me an email with any questions you have and that's going to do it for me in this episode of the dark assassins podcast until next time my fellow assassins remember Full nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassin's Podcast.